Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, how transparent has the Ontario government been with the COVID-19 back-to-school plan? We'll talk with Professor Andrea Perella about that. If a fall election comes up during the pandemic, will we see a change in how we vote? Elections Canada weighs in on that. And a COVID-19 vaccine that is being developed by Canadians at the University of Cambridge could be tested here in Hamilton. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. How transparent has the Ontario government been with COVID-19 back-to-school plans? Uh, and, and we can probably be a lot more inclusive about that. I, I scan newspapers from Alberta, from British Columbia, from Quebec, and the, even some of the prairie provinces, and certainly on the East Coast. The concerns that we're hearing about back-to-school here in Ontario are the same right across the country. Uh, there seems to be a lack of information. Parents don't think they can make an informed decision because they're not getting all the answers. Uh, and we're getting policy announcements, but, you know, who's asking, well, why are we doing it this way? And how effective is it going to be? Let's uh, bring uh, Professor Andrea Perella into the conversation. Uh, she is an associate professor and director at Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and of Public Policy at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good to be here. Transparency is, is, is one of the, the words that politicians always want to use and talk about what's going to be happening. And, you know, we're always going to be open and honest with you. The, I'm, I'm getting a sense from the, the parents I've talked to, Professor, that they just don't seem to get it. I mean, there aren't enough answers right now. I mean, a lot of us are nervous. A lot of us are confused right now. Is government helping or hurting the situation? Right now, it seems that they're hurting the situation. Um, I mean, we have to understand that this pandemic situation or this pandemic actually can be broken down into three phases, three periods. Like there's a shutdown, which was from March up until relatively recent. Um, and there the governments mostly did well. You know, they handled the shutdown well. We felt safe for sure. They were talking about testing. And even Doug Ford was saying he'll, he'll spare no expense to, you know, to expand testing and to keep us safe. You know, that, that, that was great. You know, he deferred to medical specialists. So there was no hiding there. It's like, you have a, a medical question? Let's bring in a medical expert. Then there was the restart, which was fairly, uh, I guess it was okay how it was phased in. But now we're at that critical stage where we're not just talking about opening up shopping centers and gyms. We're now talking about bringing our kids to school. And uh, that brings up a whole bunch of other emotional uh, issues. And this is where they're screwing up. Uh, because, number one, they're targeting teachers' unions as the only obstacle in the rollout of whatever the government wants to do when there's actually a wider array of stakeholders who are saying, hey, wait a minute, are you sure you know what you're doing? These are nurses, school bus drivers, parents, students, media editors, um, support staff. So the list goes on. That There are other sectors. I, I cannot think of one stakeholder that says, you know, this is cool, this is great, let's, 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 let's roll it out. Uh, most stakeholders in the in the back to school uh, phase of the restart are all worried, uh, and even parents who agree to send their kids to school are doing it with some angst, some trepidation. Partly because they have to go to work, so that they have nowhere else to send their kids. Um, partly they're worried about um, uh, isolating the children and and the the, the psychological effects of that. Um, but no one is sending their kids to school, or very few people are sending their kids to school feeling comfortable. So there's a lot of a, a lot of people out there, and not just teachers, who are upset that the government is not really being forthcoming. Or, or what do you have in mind? Like what's going on here? Um, and, and they won't uh, even um, 
uh, explain themselves why they're not abiding fully to the recommendations outlined by the experts at SICKITS. Apparently, that's, that's what they're following. So there's all these questions, all these uh, unanswered questions that are, uh, I think this is where, where the government is, is bungling. Yeah, but every time they say, okay, we're going to use that policy that sick kids develop, typical of politicians, because they all do it from time to time, professors, you know, they cherry pick. Okay, we can do that. Ah, that one's a little too difficult. We're not going to go there. And your point is well taken. I I, I get frustrated when I hear the premier boil us down to a a a political issue. It's unions that don't like this government. Well, that's probably a reciprocal agreement anyway, but I'm not so sure that's the motivation. Uh, One of the loudest voices, I was reading this last night, is from uh, Dr. Camille Lemieux. Uh, Dr. Lemieux uh, runs the testing center at Toronto Western Hospital with some very serious concerns and questions about, you know, testing for kids. What's going to happen when, you know, somebody tests positive? Uh, Do the parents have to go and get a test? Do they have to stand in line? These are are valid questions. This is not, hey, I don't like conservatives. It's I'm worried about the kids' health and their well-being. And so far, the government hasn't got answers, or at least they haven't given them to the public. Exactly, and it's and another good point. It's not because people don't like the conservatives, because up until relatively recently, they they loved the conservatives. Doug Ford's popularity improved uh, probably better than than you know. It made history by being one of the most uh, by having approval ratings in the twenty percent range, improving to up to the seventy percent range, and mm-hmm. that's that's unheard of. Uh, so it's not a partisan issue. It's not a, that, that that this is a. a, a Liberals and NDPers who are opposed to the government's agenda. You know, for, up until recently, everybody was was embracing Doug Ford and, and his uh, manner of how he was, how he handled the shutdown. It's the restart, and it's the school restart that is being uh, totally messed up. Um, again, yeah, and, and it's there are people playing politics, sure, uh, but it's not just politics. There's genuine concern out there, and, and cherry picking happens all the time. But there's some cherries you do not pick and some cherries you do yeah, and, exactly. and the sick kids recommendation did not say here's a menu of things you can pick from they're saying distance is essential a smaller class size is essential when possible masking and hand hygiene those are also important but they really emphasize the distancing part and that's the part that the government is, is ignoring they're emphasizing smaller class sizes. Again, that's the part that the government is ignoring. Why? I guess that they figure if we <laughs> abide by those recommendations, we're going to have to double the number of teachers, double the number of people that they want to target, strengthen the union. So I guess they, they see it as um, a, a political consequence that, that uh, abiding by these health recommendations may have, in their view, negative political consequences by strengthening the teachers' unions. So they're targeting the, the, the teachers' unions. But that's, you know, that, that's... Uh, hypothetical on my part, but uh, I don't know what they're thinking. And that's the other problem. We don't know what they're thinking. Yeah. There's another element to this, too, and I'd like to get your your read on this. Uh, we don't live in a bubble here in Ontario. Uh, I mean, we see what's happening in other jurisdictions, and many of them have already started this. I mean, a lot of places down in the States, they start school in August. So they've already started this out. And it has not gone well in many jurisdictions. I mean, you know, we, we talked about the Israeli situation where they, they said, well, social distancing, not much. Of, and, and they actually had to shut the schools down. We've seen this happen in other jurisdictions. Uh, so, when, you know, when we are told by our quote-unquote experts here that don't worry, it's going to be fine, we're basically going about the same way that they did it, and it didn't work there. So why? I, I think parents have a legitimate question in asking, well, why is it going to work here if it didn't work there? Well, it, 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 it won't. Now, it all depends on what we mean by will work will not work if we're looking at zero cases that's impossible even, yeah, even in the best of scenarios even this uh, the sick is recommendations they said that you know there's no way to prevent uh, any infections it will happen 
Uh, and it may not happen because of school. It may happen where, where children get it from their parents or their siblings mm-hmm. or their or where they're at a, at a at a soccer game or whatnot. So it it may not be the the school may not be the venue of transmission. Uh, so there will be cases. Now, will there be a small number of cases that can be isolated, or will there be um, uh, an epidemic? Uh, and right now, the numbers are showing the reproduction factor is showing that we're we're at a bit of a dangerous point. Uh, we were below one, which is where you want to be, and now we're above one, which means that the number of, of COVID cases will double uh, in a fairly short period of time, and then it'll just be an exponential growth right before the school year. So what we're seeing in the States and Israel and a few other places that have reopened is that we're seeing a transmission, um, a transmission rates skyrocket, um, and there's no reason to expect anything else here. It may not be as bad. Uh, but it will not be great. Now, if it will not be great, uh, who will get the blame for that? And I, and I can see the Ford government being targeted here, saying, you guys didn't do what you were supposed to do. You guys didn't didn't uh, uh, abide by all the recommendations. Therefore, my child is sick. Therefore, you know, uh, the, the grandparents are dying again. Um, but, it, you know, so that's that's the risk. That's the political risk, that one case will lead to a political disaster here. Um, but if there were... If they abided by the full recommendations and there were a, a small number of cases, then they could just sort of say, well, you know, we tried, you know, we're doing our best, but this is, we can't stop all the leaks. Uh, but here, the government is putting itself in a very politically vulnerable spot by not being transparent, by not following through with all the recommendations, and exposing itself to a lot of criticism when there's even a handful of cases. There's another element to this, too, and, and, and again, this is something that we see and, and have seen, and I think it's concerning to an awful lot of us, is we're supposed to listen to the experts. You know, I, the, so-and-so knows infectious diseases, so-and-so knows this, uh, and this is the advice that we're... But we've seen high-profile, quote-unquote, experts in the United States bend to political pressure. Uh, the head of the FDA, the head of the CDC, have both clearly bent uh, because of the pressure from the White House and changed policies. Uh, especially, for instance, you know, from the, the Center for Disease Control, saying, oh, testing's not really going to be that important anymore. In whose world? We know that's ridiculous. but And we know where the pressure's coming from, because we've seen people like Anthony Fauci fight that pressure, others capitulate. Now, I'm not going to cast aspersions on what's going on in Ontario with our medical officers of health, but is that happening here, and is that why the policies are being developed? We don't know, really. Well, I don't think it, the political pressures are as strong here. Um, I don't think it's the same type of context. Um, the problem in the United States is that the uh, the president is trying to take over all these agencies who would otherwise offer independent advice, mm-hmm. um, and, he's, and he's doing it for for other, other reasons. It's a whole different context. So what's happening in the states is really a, a, a bit of a generational revolution in, in its politics. Um, we're not quite there yet here in Canada. I mean, there are signs of some populism here in Canada. Um, and some troubling signs, but I, I don't think that's what's happening here. And I did not see the government um, uh, criticize or put its scientists up for ridicule or target or pressure its scientists. I, I don't. I don't see that happening here. Um, they just ignore them uh, in some cases uh, with very little consequence. Uh, so you ignore scientists, big deal. It's incumbent then upon the public to read up on the science, and of course you can't expect people to do that. Um, so it's not the same situation here. 
But again, we're left in the dark. I mean, we're just days away from the beginning. And, and again, I see some of these quotes from some of the, the concerned parents that, you know, I want to go back to work. I'd like my child to go to school. But what happens if they go back in a second week in there, all of a sudden they, they're sent home for 14 days? I'm off work again. You know, it's just, so there's one parent, this one lady who's actually telling us, said, I may as well just stay home because until this pandemic is over, there's just too much uncertainty. And she says, I can't go work for a couple of days and then come home and work for a couple of days. That's not, that's not sustainable either. So you're looking for guidance and a help from the government here and i'm not so sure that they are as forthcoming as as parents want them to be not at this phase of the pandemic not at this particular juncture in the restart and and you're right a a lot of parents and i would say disproportionately mothers are going to um, leave their jobs in order to care for their children because what may happen is uh, some more school closures if the pandemic unravels again and, and it gets out of control they'll shut down again um and so we're back to where we were in march um, so I can see a lot of parents looking through these scenarios saying, I don't know what to do here. The government's not telling me what to do. My, my, my school is not really being helpful because the government is not supporting them. I, I, and, I'm, and I'm having the same conversations you're having. And I'm speaking to parents. I have a child in, in school. Um, and so it's the same conversations. No one's going through this period calmly and assured. We're all, we all feel like as if we're, we're going to be tap dancing on thin ice here. And, and as you say, if, if this goes badly, and, and nobody's suggesting it will, and nobody wants it to, uh, our human nature is we're, we're going to want to blame somebody for this. Right. And it doesn't even have to go badly, in my opinion. As long as like a cluster of cases in some school in one part of Ontario, um, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, well, you see what you did. Um, again, if it was handled properly and there was a small, and even a, a large cluster of cases, then it could be... I can't say shrugged off to, but it could definitely be, be you know, explained as these will happen. You know, plane crashes will happen no matter how well you inspect them. You know, things, car crashes will happen. You know, things will happen. Um, but if you mishandle it from the beginning and there are small incidents, then you get blamed for that fully. So, I, I, again, this is put, putting the government in, its, in a really bad spot, and I don't know why they walk themselves into this corner. Because this is, as you mentioned, this is part of phase three, of course, the reopening of the schools. Uh, but this one's different. I mean, this is not like opening the golf courses and, you know, well, okay, if, yeah, we can social distance. It's not like the restaurant's reopening and say, okay, uh, if, if you go in there, you do it is a bit of a risk. But, and if you get it, well, you knew the risk going in. But these are our kids. Mm-hmm. This is totally different. I mean, that, you know, as adults, we can make decisions not to crowd ourselves onto a beach or not to go to a, a restaurant and, and, you know, and start going chow to jeep with, jeep with everybody else. But these are the kids, and, and we're forcing them into a situation that I think in the back of our minds, Professor, we know is not really right. We know that they should be social distancing. Uh, we know that they should be getting tested. Uh, and it's that, that part of it, I think, is where the weakness is, and that's why I think parents are so concerned about this. Yes, and, I, and I've even seen some quotes of parents saying, I feel like I'm sending my child into a big, uh, a big science experiment. Um, they're guinea pigs. And, and, and no parent wants to volunteer their children for any type of dangerous experiment, but that's no. exactly what a lot of parents feel like, that this is what's happening. And there, are no many, uh, there aren't too many alternatives. It's, uh, it's send my kids to school so I can work, keep them at home, and I have no income. Those are not very wonderful alternatives, uh, and not many parents can make those choices. So this is a tough spot for everybody. It is, it is, and I wish we had some solutions to it, but uh, I, I don't have any forthcoming, and sadly neither did, did the governments at this stage either. Uh, Professor, always great to get your insight. Thanks so much for joining us on the program again My today. pleasure. Take care. Professor Andrea Perella, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
we could be voting in a couple of months, maybe a year. We don't know the next federal election. I mean, when there are minority governments, anything can happen. But because of the virus, there's a pretty safe bet, I think, that the way in which we vote is probably going to change by the time we go to the polls for the next federal election. Uh, there's some recommendations from Elections Canada that, uh, that I think make all kinds of sense. Uh, one of them, by the way, is mail-in balloting. And I know the orange man in the White House there is running around telling anybody who wants to listen that uh, that's fr it's fret with fraudulent behavior. Mail-in ballots, can that's how you rig an election. Uh, which is baloney, of course. Uh, as a matter of fact, the University of Ottawa professor Michael Powell says there's nothing to worry about. Voting uh, by mail uh, has been very politicized. Um, President uh, Trump has tweeted about it uh, repeatedly and made allegations of fraud. Uh, so I just want to say there is no evidence. And there isn't. Uh, thank you so much for that, Professor. Let's uh, bring uh, Natasha Goche into the conversation, spokesperson for Elections Canada. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you on the program today. Thanks, Bill, for having me. I read the overview, and I'm, I'm really impressed with a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about doing. As a matter of fact, from time to time, whenever we've talked about you know electoral reform, uh, oftentimes we'll talk about, you know, okay, how are we going to tabulate the results? Is it going to be first past the post, or is it going to be, you know, graded systems, etc.? But the way in which we vote is something that doesn't get a whole lot of conversation, and that's what you guys have focused on. That's exactly right, Bill. So for, um, as you know, in, in Canada, all our votes are, uh, uh, our ballots are marked and counted by hand. We use paper ballots, so we don't use electronic machines. That being said, we know that in a pandemic situation, uh, we are going to be faced with challenges uh, that we haven't seen before. And we've seen pretty much everything at Elections Canada from, you know, snowstorms to floods to uh, every possible type of weather situation. We haven't had to deliver an election in, in the context of a global pandemic. And so that's why we set up a working group uh, actually quite early in the spring uh, within a few weeks of uh, the, the lockdown situation being in place in Canada when we saw that this was, you know, going to be for the long haul, uh, to look at, well, what would we need to run an election that would uh, preserve the safety of the people voting and the people working at the polls while uh, maintaining the integrity of the vote? And so that working group has been working uh, very hard to come up with recommendations and also administrative plans for how we would deliver an election in this context. And within some of the parameters that our medical experts have talked about. I mean, uh, for instance, you mentioned physical distances, of course, which is, is a key element to us controlling the virus. And, and we've done pretty well with that in Canada. And you, uh, I know that and it's, it's funny that we're having this discussion now, because obviously with an election imminent in the U.S. on November the 3rd, all of these That's things right. that you've talked about are, are front and center being talked about and discussed. And there's a great deal of concern uh, about people basically, you know, putting themselves at risk by going and standing for long lines at a voting place, uh, you know, not social distancing because that's going to be very difficult to do but one of the recommendations i know is to actually have more polling stations uh so that you can have social distancing and give everybody an opportunity and maybe avoid those two or three hour lineups that we see in the states that's right well uh, i mean one thing that i i want to um uh, say and in in the context for your for your listeners is that no, no matter what happens in in the next election if there is a pandemic going on uh, we want to manage people's expectations. You know, there there may be delays. Voting may sure. take longer. It may take longer to tabulate the votes after the fact and get the results, the final results of the election. That being said, one of the proposals that we will be putting before Parliament uh, when they return in the fall 
is to have uh, polling days. So instead of being on one day on, on Election Monday, as it's always been, is to have it over two days on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. The reason that we're proposing that is twofold. One, uh, it may give us access to, to have uh, more people able to work at the polls since people, uh, you know, usually they'll have uh, more flexibility on the weekends to, to work at the polls. And the second being is that that opens up new polling locations that we wouldn't normally have access to if the vote were held on a weekday. So that includes schools, uh, bigger schools, uh, some more and different types of polling locations that would allow for increased social distancing, would allow for uh, more space between the polling uh, uh, stations uh, would allow for uh, better circulation uh, of people with with respecting that two meter social distance uh, parameter. I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but why is it, and, and whose bright idea was it that the election always needs to be on a Monday? Ah, well, that's uh, that is baked into the Canada Elections Act. Okay, uh, and yeah, has been that. So that's Parliament has decided. Uh, we have a fixed election date, uh, and normally it is uh, the third uh, Monday of October, uh, four years following the previous election. So uh, the uh, the next fixed date election would be in October 2021. But of course, this being a parliamentary system, and particularly in a minority government, uh, we have to be ready for an election to be called at any time. Yeah, but they could just as easily revise that and say it's going to be the third weekend of, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, as I mentioned on my program earlier this morning, I said, uh, uh, people don't like getting out of bed on Monday, let alone going out to vote. I mean, <laughs> I, I think if you had it on a Saturday, Sunday over a two-day period, which, by the way, uh, they do in a lot of Scandinavian and, and European countries. This is not a new concept. This is just something that we should probably adopt from somebody else. Uh, I think it makes it a lot easier. As a matter of fact, you probably get a higher voter turnout right? because people have more time on the weekends. Uh, yes, well, I mean, certainly other countries uh, do have their their polling days, their normal polling days over the weekend. Uh, the well, measures the that polls we're up proposing here are, are usually advanced polling yes, is usually on a weekend. That's correct. Advanced polls have been uh, over four days, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Uh, yeah. And and just to clarify that the the two day that two day polling day uh, situation would be in addition to a four day advanced polling sure. uh, period, uh, not instead of. Um, the measures that we're proposing uh, to Parliament, uh, they are intended to be uh, temporary uh, and, and situational to, to this uh, pandemic uh, period. However, you know, whether any of those measures are maintained long term uh, within the Act, that would be uh, something for Parliament to, to see after the next election if, if, that's, um, if they want to make permanent changes. Yeah, I just want to remind our listeners, uh, you mentioned these are going to be temporary. Uh, the Income Tax Act by, by Prime Minister Borden was temporary, too, and uh, here we are, 2020, <laughs> and we're still doing it. So temporary has a whole different meaning in Ottawa, Natasha, so I, we just have to be right. forewarned is forearmed, I guess, when it comes to situations like that. Let, let's get to what some people think is a contentious item. I don't think it is at all. Uh, the idea of more mail-in balloting. And, and I, I'm going to go on a, on a limb here and predict even with these things that you're recommending, and even if Parliament adopts uh, all these on a, uh, as you say, temporary basis, let's face it, the majority of us are still going to go and vote. Uh, that, that's the, the, the comfort level, and that's what a lot of us do. But you're giving options right now for other people, and mail-in balloting is something that, uh, for some reason, well, I know why the reason is, it's, it's Trump, but I mean, it, it's got a bad name, and it's been going on for hundreds of years around the world, and uh, it's it's not a bad system. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, for, for some people, a very prudent way to cast their ballot. 
Right, and mail-in ballots, I mean, have been in use. We've had mail-in ballots for, for many, many years here in Canada. Uh, they are part of the standard uh, array of voting methods offered to people during elections, and they are not only for people, for Canadians who live abroad, for example, who want to cast a vote. Anybody can go and request a mail-in ballot and cast their vote that way. Um, the difference with what we are asking Parliament to consider is to the the way that the um, the way that the 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 act is written right now. Uh, it um, there are there are time limits for uh, receiving and counting the ballots, and so uh, we would be looking at um, uh, the the ballots being uh, uh, sorry our our ability to accept the ballots would be extended. So uh, as long as the mail-in ballot was sent, was postmarked before the deadline, so which is the, the, the end of the day uh, mm-hmm. on election day, of the last election day, we would continue to accept them until the day following the two-day weekend p- polling period. So basically what that would mean is it would extend the deadline by which we could receive the ballots and count them. Uh, and so that's, again, that's really what we're... That's really what we're asking uh, Parliament to, to yeah. do. So that which, would just, which, that would just which, give us more time yeah, to, to, to receive the ballots and, and count them if they are sent by mail. Because, and, and address one of the concerns I mean, we've got in the States about the mail, the speed of the mail, etc. I mean, you've, you've covered that off, and it, that's not going to be a problem up here. I think it makes all kinds of sense. Uh, to, right, to and mail-in ballots, mail-in ballots, like every other ballot, are marked and counted by hand still. So, uh, you know, we don't use electronic tabulation or electronic marking. And, and by the way, there are there are security things that are put in place. You don't just get a ballot and run it in. I mean, you know, if you, oh, well, the dogs are getting them and stuff like that. No, that the, there's there's <laughs> certain quite there's certain information that you have exclusively uh, that you have to put on that ballot to val- validate that it's actually you that's voting. Uh, that's right. There's there's a when when you when you request a mail-in ballot, uh, you receive a, a, a voting kit, and and it's it's very secure. There's an outer envelope. There's an inner envelope. Uh, you know, to to make sure that uh, that the ballot that you mark and send is the one we actually receive. Uh, we uh, have staff who are trained, you know, to to look at these ballots and uh, um, process them uh, in a way that maintains the integrity of the vote. Absolutely. Uh, we have been surveying Canadians. Uh, we did one poll uh, a couple of weeks ago in mid-August, and, and the final results will be available soon. And we'll be posting that, as we do all of this information, is available on our website for Canadians to look at at uh, uh, www.elections.ca. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the polls indicated uh, that uh, a majority of Canadians uh, uh are saying right now that they would still prefer to vote in person. Sure. And that's not entirely surprising. But the percentage of people right now who are saying that they would do a mail-in ballot, uh, you know, has gone up, uh, let's say, compared to to previous non-pandemic election times. And uh, that's not surprising either. And and so we are preparing uh, for an increase in demand for mail-in ballots. Yeah, but I, I doubt very much you're going to be overwhelmed by this, as you say. I mean, you know, there, there could be people that are high risk for COVID that may just say, you know what, I'm better off not doing this. And so you might you might see a bit of a blip, but I don't think it's going to be a spike. In or, but the fact that it's there. And by the way, just to, to, to put an exclamation mark on this conversation about mail-in balloting, uh, the loudest dissenter about this, Donald Trump, uh, votes by mail. 
uh, and has for a number of years. He, he, he calls it absentee ballots. Well, how do you think the ballot gets there? It, it's mailed. See, it's the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, in Florida, which he now calls residents, there's no such thing as absentee ballots, just mail-in balloting. So, I mean, he's, he's playing games with people's heads here. I like what you're suggesting. I, I think this is a fabulous way, albeit temporary, of course, to deal with this. But we don't know how long the virus is going to be with us. So, you know, probably no. for the next election. That that's correct, and you know, uh, as we know, that that there there may be waves in the virus. So right yeah. now, uh, in most Canadian cities, you know, it's it's quieter than it was uh, earlier in the spring. But uh, you know, the the public health officials, and and I do want to underline that you know we we have been and will be working very closely with uh, the provincial and federal uh, public health officials to ascertain uh, the level of contagion and uh, the the. Uh, concern level for the, uh, the the infection rate in in the different communities, uh, and, and that that's a given. Um, but uh, uh, certainly, the measures that we're proposing uh, before Parliament, uh, we feel, uh, will go a long way towards uh, uh, increasing the the level of uh, security and accessibility to to voting, and and the flexibility. Uh, for example, you know, one of the things we're asking for is uh, to give the returning officers flexibility around uh, the votes, the the polls that are held in uh, long-term care centers and hospitals, so the mobile polls that we do every year. Uh, obviously, if there's an outbreak in a hospital, you know, they're not going to want election workers from outside coming in. Uh, but the people in that hospital are, you know, they're still entitled to exercise their franchise and vote. So one of the options we're looking at is to see if the hospital would want to have certain staff trained to be poll workers so that they're they're already in the hospital but they're able to uh provide uh, uh patients with that option to vote uh go to the web page if you want to get some more information about this as uh, as uh, you mentioned natasha of course it's all there and you post stuff on a regular basis there and if any questions at all about the electoral process uh, uh just check with elections canada listen congratulations and thank you for you to you and the staff uh for coming up with these ideas and 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 being flexible and here's hoping that uh, once this is presented to the parliament uh that these uh, guys expeditiously look at this and say yeah this is the best way to do this i think you've come up with some really good stuff here Thanks very much, Bill. We appreciate it. Great talking with you, Natasha. Stay well. Thank you. You too. Natasha Gauthier, spokesperson for Elections Canada, with a whole raft of new ideas that uh, they'd like Parliament to adopt for the next election simply because of what's happening with COVID-19. And we'll see how the Parliament and how the politicians respond to this. Just don't get political about this. This is uh, for the common good. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Looks like a COVID-19 vaccine could be tested here in Hamilton. It's uh, being developed uh, by Canadians. Well, we know about the work that's going on at the University of Cambridge, of course, in the UK. We've talked about that for quite some time. Uh, But there is a Canadian connection to that. uh, And as a result of that, we could see some work being done here in Hamilton. To give us some insight into this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Mark Loeb. Uh, Dr. Loeb, of course, is a professor in pathology, molecular medicine, and clinical epidemiology and biostatics at McMaster University uh, with a world-class reputation for doing this sort of work. Uh, Doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, good morning, Bill. Talk to us again about the connection with what's going on at Cambridge and the work that you're doing, Doctor. Okay. Well, the, the uh, work at Cambridge is a, um, it's a vaccine, a DNA vaccine that's been developed by uh, Dr. Jonathan Heaney, who's a Canadian. He's just been uh, living in the U- working, living and working in the UK for a number of years, 
And um, there's a spin-off company called Diosynvax, uh, which has produced this DNA vaccine. So it's a DNA vaccine that's been produced by uh, using computer modeling and artificial intelligence. So uh, we think it will be an effective vaccine to uh, protect uh, people from COVID. So uh, what's the connection? Did you know Dr. Heaney before? I, I know he went to University of Guelph uh, and got some of his training there before he went overseas. Yeah, no, I just met him uh, a few months ago by uh, by uh, Skype. So we were introduced by uh, by a Canadian scientist. And uh, for the last few months, we've been uh, discussing and, and basically putting a protocol, essentially. It's that, you know, he's developed this vaccine, and it's a, a vaccine that uh, that targets a certain part of the virus that uh, we think will lead to longer duration of immunity that'll be safer uh, and that doesn't require a cold chain. That means that the, the, the vaccine doesn't require um, a refrigeration. So it could be sent, used globally. It could be used in remote parts of, uh, of Canada. So there's a lot of uh, advantages. So we've been just talking back and forth and, and then we put it on paper and we've developed a protocol to do a, a phase two and a phase three study. Now, that's interesting because I think we're all, because of COVID-19, doctor, learning a lot more about uh, the methodologies that have to be put in place here. And the, and the phase two and phase three are, are some of the most important parts of that. Uh, and that's, I guess, to put it in the vernacular, right into your wheelhouse. I mean, you've been doing those sorts of tests on influenza and other things for, for quite a long time now. Yeah, that's right. We've been, we, you know, for, for over 15 years, we've been doing a, a number of uh, large clinical trials. Uh, some of them are in, for the influenza vaccine in children. And we have a, a large global trial uh, that's ongoing right now where, where we've randomized uh, over 5,200 uh, people to influenza vaccine to see if the, the vaccine reduces heart attacks like cardiovascular outcomes. So that trial is being done uh, in collaboration with uh, Dr. Salim Youssef, who's at the Population Health Research Institute. So that's being done in, in over 30 centers in 12 countries, including the Philippines, Uganda, Mozambique, Kenya, Nigeria, India, Saudi Arabia, you know, a, a number of these countries. So for us, it's, you know, it's not that much of a stretch to go from that to expand that to a COVID clinical trial. Where is that clinical trial right now? Have they done phase one already? So, uh, for the uh, for this COVID vaccine, this DNA vaccine, uh, funding was just announced. So the the phase one trial will be done in the UK. Okay. So the plan is all being good when it moves to phase two, phase three, uh, depending, of course, on, on the results of the phase one, which we're confident will show, uh, uh, you know, a safe uh, a safe 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 uh, signal in terms of being a vaccine um, that we could continue to do the phase two and phase three depending on on funding phase one it's it's a smaller group of people and you're really just testing i guess to see uh what the vaccine will do to the body i guess and phase two it's a much larger uh, sampling isn't it yeah so basically phase one is usually under 100 uh, patients in the trial and the key thing is that it's a safety uh, trial. So you want to make sure that there are no, uh, you know, bad signals in terms of uh, safety. Uh, and you also look for an immune response. Phase two is several hundred people, typically between 500 and 600 people, something of that order. And you're still, you're always looking at safety, but there you're looking more at the immune response. You're looking at how the vaccine 
um, affects the uh, different aspects of the immune response, the antibody response and the T-cell response. And it's sort of a stop-and-go, you know. There's stop-and-go rules at every stage, and if it, something works, you go on to the next stage. Uh, and then the phase three is when you're actually looking to see how the vaccine protects people from getting infected. So that is not, you know, in the hundreds anymore. That's in the thousands of, of participants. Now, that phase three, I, from what I understand, doctor, that's where you are going to the deep end of the pool. In other words, you want to go to some of the hot spots, don't you? That's correct. And, and I think that's where we have the advantage because we're doing these trials all over the world. And, um, you know, even from six months from now, we don't always know which centers are going to be the hotspots. So you're absolutely right, Bill. We want to do the, this phase three trial in hotspots. Now, if there's going to be a Hamilton participation volunteers here, I, I would think it's it, probably phase two that you'd be looking at. Then that, that and that's the I guess the placebo end of it, and, and some people will get the vaccine, some will get a placebo, and that's that way you've got a comparator. That's absolutely correct. In, in fact, when you're doing a phase two trial, when you're looking at the immune response, uh, you're better off not doing it when there's a lot of COVID. Uh, virus circulating because you want to sort out what's the impact of the vaccine as composed to as opposed to having natural infection um, interfere with the, the results so it would be very feasible for us to do it in hamilton and, and in other canadian centers for that matter I, I know there's a lot of controversy in some other areas right now where this work is also going on uh, about maybe skipping a step and, and you know i don't want to get into the politics of a doctor mm -hmm. but you know, trying to rush the process and uh, as, as you've explained to us I remember talking to you as you were talking about some of these other things you're doing with the influenza and phase one phase two and phase three you can't skip a step because it ruins the efficacy of the whole process yeah yeah it's you, you have to go through all the phases but what's different now with COVID is that um, the whole the phases are being done but everything is being compressed in terms of the timeline so sure ordinarily one would do a phase one and then apply for funding for a phase two and a phase three. And then um, once the results of the phase three come out, then uh, people would look for to a manufacturer to, to manufacture the vaccine. And what's happening now is that, you know, once you have your phase one, even before your phase one, you have to make plans to scale up the, the vaccine. So basically, you're making uh, plans to manufacture the vaccine before you even know whether it's effective <laughs> within the phase three. That's, that's kind of rolling the dice, isn't it? It, it absolutely it's rolling uh, the dice. But all all the vaccine manufacturers, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. You know, one wants to get the the vaccine out as soon as possible, uh, and. You know, the conventional wisdom is that it's not going to be one vaccine that's going to save the world from COVID, that there'll have to be a number of vaccines out there. Well, and I know that we've heard some stories about the Canadian government and, and others, you know, that are, are making those arrangements now. And I think it probably gives some people a false idea that, you know, that means we're really close to this. Now, there's still a process that happens, but you've got to lay that foundation for when you get to that point, I guess. Yeah, I, I think a key thing is that it, it's really important, you know, what we've seen with uh, COVID is that, um, you know, every country is self-interested and every country is on its own, basically, right? We've seen this with N95 respirator masks mm -hmm. where, um, you know, we can't rely on the United States to send us masks if we don't have enough. So we're all on our own and it's going to be the same with the vaccines. So we're in a much better, we'll be in a much better shape if we can have vaccines that are 
scaled up, manufactured in Canada and tested in Canada than we are if we're relying on, on, on other countries. Do we have that infrastructure in place now, Doctor? Uh, yeah, we have the infrastructure. It's certainly possible to do. Uh, I mean, it, it does depend on uh, on the will of the Canadian government, of course, but uh, it's certainly possible to do. Absolutely. Uh, this is fascinating stuff, and and obviously because of the connection with Dr. Heaney and and you know his his Canadian connection and the work that's going on here, and and of course your reputation on a, on a global basis for the the great work that you've done with infectious diseases over the while. It looks like a fabulous partnership that's coming together here, and hopefully to uh, to a great end where we can get a vaccine that's going to uh, do something about this, this terrible virus that's going on. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, Doctor. Thank you so much for this, and uh, continued good luck with the work that you're doing here. Well, thank you, Bill. Take care. You too. Doc, Dr. Mark Loeb, of course, uh, from McMaster University. As I say, worldwide, we've had Dr. Loeb in this program many, many times over the years. Uh, it's, it's groundbreaking stuff that he's doing. And it uh, looks like the, in partnership with uh, the work that's going on over in the U.K. right now, Hamilton could actually be part of the test case. Uh, more to come on that, obviously, when we get to that stage. I'm sure we'll let you know about that. Uh, another story we want to touch on right now. Um, the Ontario NDP Black Caucus is calling for an overhaul of the police oversight. Uh, that's the SIU, of course, after the SIU's ruling in the death of Regis Korchinski Paquette. Uh, a lot of controversy about this, uh, basically saying that uh, police were not culpable in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Global's Jason Chapman's been looking into those. Here's, here's a report. This tragedy played out just 48 hours after the death of George Floyd. It must be acknowledged that Ms. Korchinski Paquette's death and others in recent months has raised important issues of social consequence. But the head of Ontario's police watchdog says after interviewing all six officers involved and 15 separate witnesses, there's no evidence Toronto police committed a crime. The evidence indicates that no one other than Ms. Kuczynski Paquette was on the balcony when she scaled over the railing, lost her balance, and fell. SIU Director Joseph Martino goes on to say after hearing the 911 calls, he has no doubt officers were lawfully inside the High Park apartment. As far as they knew, they were responding to multiple reports of assault, all of which mentioned the presence of knives in the course of the altercation. Jason Chapman, Global News. Jill Andrew is uh, an NDP MPP for uh, Toronto St. Paul's and a member of the NDP Black Caucus. Uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Jill, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, to suggest that the SIU is wrapped in controversy is not a new headline. We've been talking about this for quite some time, but this, I think, really underscores the concern. It absolutely does, and thank you so, so much for having me. Uh, what we knew, what we know for quite some time right now is that the SIU is not working for black community members. It's not working for Indigenous community members and for racialized community members. Uh, we are calling uh, for a complete uh, rehaul of the SIU so we can bring accountability and independence and transparency uh, back to SIU because right now it is sorely missing that. There have been reports, and you know about the history of this, Jill, but I'll just remind our listeners, uh, by, by other justices and, and as a result of other investigations that say, look, this has to be changed. And that word you just threw at us there, transparency, is, is you know, prominent in just about every one of those recommendations. Why aren't they moving the yardsticks here? You know, I, I, I cannot tell you why they're not doing it, but what I can tell you is that we're sick of it, um, as are the families of Regis, of, of DeAndre Campbell, of, of Chantel Moore, for goodness sakes, of, of Ija Shandri. This is not a one-off situation where people, predominantly black, indigenous, and racialized, are calling 911 for help. Their family members are calling 911 for help. 
especially when they're having a mental health crisis and people are ending up dead. And it doesn't have to be this way. You know, first off, we need to have mental health responders responding to mental health calls. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't call the French teacher to, to teach the Italian class or, or to, keep, to teach Italian. You know, if she doesn't know the language, she can't teach the subject. You know, what we know is that our first responders, our police officers, many of them are doing jobs that, frankly, they're not trained to do. And it is often having deadly, circum- deadly consequences. And, you know, and th- we hear that all the time when we have a tragedy like what occurred uh, that evening. Uh, yet here we are in the same circumstance. I mean, I saw a clip on, on City News the other day of, talking to one of your officers, uh, Toronto police officers anyway, uh, simply saying, look, at, by default we have to do this because nobody else is stepping up. Well, isn't that the government's responsibility to make sure that somebody who is trained does step up? It absolutely is. And that is why we are calling for this overhaul of the SIU. This is why we're calling for a complete overhaul of police oversight. You know, this is why we're calling for the the end of carding. I mean, something that could have been done in this government, in the previous Liberal government, there is no reason that they're sleeping on this. They're sleeping on changing legislation that, quite frankly, can help save lives. And uh, we are just sick and tired of it. I mean, our hearts go out to every single family who has had to lose their loved one tragically like this against the backdrop of COVID-19. Like, this has to stop. I attended Regis's memorial, and I saw her parents. I saw her mom and dad. I met with them. I talked to them. Um, I was there with MPP um, Carpochi, Batilla Carpochi for Parkdale High Park. And the, the sorrow, the sorrow in that space, the grief... The, the bewilderness, we have to do something for our communities across Ontario. And it starts with a complete overhaul of police oversight because it is not working. SIU is not working for black people. It is not working for indigenous people. And it is not working for racialized communities across Ontario. Well, and, and the broader picture here, one of the other concerns here, Jill, and I know you're aware of this, uh, it doesn't work for anybody. I mean, you know, when, when these sorts of investigations go on, and, and to your point, there, there are two or three different uh, oversight agencies in the province of Ontario that are supposed to overlook, oversee policing. Uh, it, it, it takes way too long to do an investigation. It's usually done w- with a total lack of transparency. And in the meantime, the families of, of the people that are involved, on you know, the, the police side and, of course, the victim side, are left waiting and waiting and waiting and not knowing what's going on absolutely absolutely it's it's not fair to anybody it's not and that waiting and waiting and waiting can you imagine the anxiety the depression the sadness uh that it causes those families and you know i just want to say something as well while i'm here the reason why i'm emphasizing black indigenous and racialized families is because we know that 70 percent of police involved fatalities in canada involve mental health and addiction issues And we know that of those 70% fatalities, black, indigenous, and racialized peoples are disproportionately, disproportionately represented in that 70%, considering our far less than uh, population or percentage in the general population. So that's why I stress it. However, you're absolutely right. Uh, A broken system doesn't work for anyone. And the SIU is absolutely a broken system. It is within our power to fix it, or should I say specifically within Doug Ford's government's power 
to fix it. And as the official opposition, we are going to hang in there tooth and nail. Uh, we're going to continue to demand accountability because one life is too many lives. And you know that there have been several lives just since the spring. Just when since you, this spring. Joe, when does the legislature get back to work? Uh, we're getting back to work on September 14th. And to be very good, frank, we good. haven't stopped working. No, uh, I know that. COVID-19, I mean, we've all been working. No, but I mean, uh, we're, talking, know, about, we're talking about question period and trying to hold the government's feet to the fire. So, Oh, I, we, September 14th. And I, and I tell you, I am so motivated. I am so ready to go. Um, I have had months of conversations uh, with my fine folks here in Toronto, St. Paul's, and I've certainly had conversations with other families across Ontario, uh, from police brutality to small businesses, the fact that the Doug Ford government didn't give direct funding, not once, to our businesses across this province, to housing and no rent relief. I could go on and on. Next month at school, and our parents are terrified. There are so many questions we have for this government, and they'd better come with their A-game. Jill, thanks so much for this, and uh, we'll be watching uh, when you guys get back to work and uh, see what the government's response is. Well, hopefully we get a response before that. Uh, all the best. Thanks so much for the time today, Jill. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Peace Jill thanks. Andrew, MPP, of course, for uh, Toronto St. Paul. Uh, SIU, once again, in the uh, fire line of controversy. Government's got to do something about that. I mean, we've, how many times have we talked about that? We've had incidents like that here in Hamilton and, and down in London as well. And uh, it's, it's, the, it's the oversight agencies that, that really seem to be messing this whole thing up. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.